you please pray with me if you don't mind? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak to our hearts. And God, that you would uh, just open up our, our minds and our eyes and our ears to hear. And uh, God, I pray that you would show yourself uh, to us in this moment. Um, open up your word to us. And may, may we as the church, the body uh, of people here gathered in this place, may we understand what it is that you have said about yourself. And moreover, what you said about the Father, because you are the exact replica of him. And so, God, would you illumine our eyes and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, a few years ago, I had the uh, privilege of going to Guatemala. I've been to Guatemala a couple times. I've been on some other uh, mission trips to Mexico. And, and I would say the, the two are very so similar in this, that oftentimes when you go to a, a country that is in need, they'll encourage you on the trip before you ever go out um, that you, you want to be careful about what you're caught doing, meaning giving things away. And uh, when I was there uh, in Guatemala, we would, we would leave uh, Guatemala City, which we, we flew into, and then we would uh, just head up into the mountains, and we would drive all through Guatemala. We'd go through um, different areas, and they had this lake that was in the middle. Uh, it was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen until I, I figured out what ran into it, and that was all of people's, you know, excrement. Uh, and so it was pretty nasty. But from the view, you'd be like, oh my goodness, this is Lake Atitlan. And as you drove through the mountains, though, you would see all these kids and they were gathered on the side of the road. And, and they would have little campfires going and they would be kind of sitting around and you would just drive on and on and on and on. It was the same picture every single mile that you drove. On our very first trip, though, I didn't really catch on to it, but there was a group of people who had been there before and they would take bags of candy and they would throw that out to the kids. And those kids were, I mean, they would just flock to it. And so the next year that I went, I was like, hey, I'm going to get me a huge bag of candy. And so I packed one solid bag full of candy. And during the ride there, we would just throw it out. And those kids would literally come out of the mountains to the road, and they were just fighting, scavenging for it. And what they would tell you, though, is like, it's okay to do that on the bus, but once you get off the bus, don't do that. I was like, Why? And they were like, because they will tackle you, rob you, and take everything you've got. And the reason why is because they saw us not as people who were there to give them a, a message and ultimately meet a spiritual need, but they would see us as someone who was there to what? Meet a physical need. And so the same was true in Mexico. If you crossed over the, the state lines from Texas to Mexico, if you ever got caught giving a dollar to someone, they would all flock to you. And the reason why is because they saw you as someone who could give them a handout or meet a physical need in that moment. Well, as you look at John chapter 6, you're going to see a picture of a group of people that are similar to this. Matter of fact, you're going to see as Jesus declares uh, to the people who he is, that there are a group of people that are following him, and they're interested in what he has to offer. Now, what's interesting, though, is as you look at this, uh, he, he's offering lots of things, but they're oftentimes looking for the wrong reasons. And so what you're going to see is, is that Jesus does something really incredible here. And John records it. He's going to show who he is. He's going to show that he is the image and the replica of the Father. And in John, you're going to get this picture of what he's doing. In Exodus chapter 3, if you can recall, God shows himself to Moses in the burning bush. And he's going to tell Moses that I want you to go to the people and I want you to, to show them who I am. And Moses asked the question to God. He goes, well, if I'm going to go to the people of Israel, and I'm going to tell them that there's a God who's sending me. Who am I to tell them who you are? What if they ask me what your name is? Who, who am I supposed to tell them that you are? 
And God replies to Moses in that moment, Exodus chapter 3, he says, you tell them I am who I am. Meaning, even if you tell them that I am a sovereign God who knows all, who sees all, and is all-powerful, they won't understand it. If you tell them that I'm the the God that saves the nation of Israel, is going to call them out of bondage, I'm going to give them new life, I'm going to give them a Messiah, I'm going to appoint a son that's going to save them from the sins, they won't get it. So you just tell them, I am who I am. And that pretty much encapsulates everything that I am. But what's interesting is is that John's going to give you a picture. As a matter of fact, if you look at the book of John, it's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are the synoptic gospels. They're a similar gospel that tell a similar storyline. They have similar parables, similar stories, similar miracle accounts. But John, he, he kind of breaks the mold. And the reason why, in the latter part of John, he says, I have given you the signs of, of the gospel. I've given you the signs of Jesus so that you may see that you may believe, and that you may trust him. And so John says, I'm going to take a different approach than everybody else. I want you to see who Jesus is. I want you to hear who he says that he is, and then I want you to believe in him. And so the whole purpose of this series is called I Am. It's to look at who Jesus says about himself. And he says, I am the bread. I am the light. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And he just says, I am, I am, I am. And every time that he says, I am, he is simply showing you a picture of who God is. Because all the Jews, they wanted, they longed to see the face of God. Moses said, I want to see the face of God. All the others said, I long to see God. But yet, interesting enough, when God was in front of them, Jesus, the incarnate word, standing before them, they didn't want to see God as much as they had proclaimed they had. And so here it is, Jesus saying, I am God, and he's standing before the people. And the question is, is what does he have to offer? And so in the next seven weeks, really six weeks in Christmas Eve, we're going to look at the seven I am statements of Jesus. The same thing that Moses was looking for in Exodus chapter 3 when he says, who do I tell the people that you are? And so I've got two challenges for you as we approach this series, okay? Number one, I want you to raise your hands on this one, okay? How many of you don't mind going ahead and we're going to kick Christmas off a little bit early? I I know there's this Thanksgiving rule. I get it. There's some of you in here that you could play Christmas music year-round like me. There's others of you that you have these strict rules in place. But as we enter into this time, how many of you are okay with saying, we're going to enter Christmas at least on Sundays here at Stone Point a little early? Okay, go ahead. Raise your hand. Okay, now if you didn't raise your hand, I'm just going to go ahead and blanket it. Maybe you're not a Christian, okay? And it may seem a little bit rough, a little bit harsh, but here's the deal. I mean, you have God in the flesh, the incarnate word, come to his people, and that's what Christmas is about. And so, like, why can't we sing a few songs about the one who God sent, right? Even if, I mean, we should be doing that all year round, not just, like, after Thanksgiving, after we've had turkey and dressing and cranberries, you know? Like, so get rid of your rules. How many of you, okay, now that I've called you out, let's raise your hands one more time. You're like, I'm good with doing this, Okay. Yes, go ahead, okay, and then if you're not, just, well, we'll pray for you, okay? (laughs) And then the second one, okay, now here's the second one. This one is going to be a a, a little bit of a challenge as well, and for many of us in here, um, as I talk, I I have my iPad in front of me, but also brought this, and I know, like, this is almost, like, this this almost seems ancient, like a a Bible, like a text, you know, like, but what I'm going to ask you to do over the next really six weeks, but seven messages, is I want you to bring your Bible. 
Now, for some of you in here, like, I don't really know where my Bible is, and that's okay. Go get it. There's others of you that you know exactly where your Bible is, but you just don't bring it because you rely on your phone. But for this series, here's what I'm asking. I'm asking you to bring your Bible, and if you don't have one, we'll get you one. Or if you're like, hey, this would be a good time to go get me a new one, that would be great too. But here's the challenge, and we're starting it now, but for the next year, I want you to mark this Bible up. I want you to when we teach on Sunday mornings or when you have some reflection time, some quiet time, some devotional time, some Bible study time on your own, I want you to mark it up. And here's why. I think it's a tragedy that so many of us as Christians in this room and really in the church, we hold on to these Bibles for a long, long time. And for some of us, we've had the same Bible since we were in high school. And it looks the same as when you got it. It's pretty much new. It's not beaten. It's not tattered. It's not torn. You hadn't really marked in it. And the question is, is why not? And what's the goal of your Bible? Well, the goal of the Bible should be this, to mark it up, to study it up, and then get this, give it away. And so a year from now, what a great gift, dads, if you were to give your newborn son or your son that's about to leave high school and go to college, if you gave him a Bible that you had marked up and studied up, and here's the deal, the tragedy is many of us, we can't give a Bible away because we don't have one that's marked up. It would be an embarrassment to give that away. But the, the challenge is, bring it. And here's why. Because as we study who Jesus is and who he says he is, I want you to see a picture of God in the Gospels, and I want you to mark this up. And so we're beginning this series, the I Ams, Jesus declaring who he is. And so if you got your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 6. If you happen to have it with you, take out a pen, a highlighter, or whatever, begin marking it up. And hey, if not, then hey, start next week, okay? But in verse 22 of John chapter 6, It says, on the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Now, here's what they've noticed, that there was a boat, and that boat was housed with many of the disciples. Now, the disciples left the Sea of Tiberias, and they got in a boat, and they went to Capernaum. And Jesus wasn't in the boat. Now, let me give you the picture, the scene, so you understand it. Here's what's happening. In John chapter 6, Jesus had just fed 5,000 people. Now, 5,000 people would flock to him, and as they they flocked to him, you had Philip who was questioning who Jesus was and what he was going to do, and Jesus says, I'm about to feed all these people. Philip goes, I don't know how we're going to do it. All we got is two fishes, five loaves from this little boy. Jesus says, hey, don't worry about that. I can distribute it in a supernatural way, and he does. He feeds 5,000 people, which is a miracle of miracles. And then all the people, they love it. They, they have their feel. Their stomachs are full. And so they decide, hey, we're going we're gonna to find this Jesus. And we're going to follow him. And so they, they noticed, though, the next day that something had happened. The disciples got in a boat and left, but they didn't see Jesus get in the boat as well. And so they get up, and what they do is, is they go to the local bakery where Jesus seemed to be baking bread and giving it away, and they wanted a handout. Unfortunately, though, Jesus wasn't there. There was a sign on the door that said, close, I'll be back later. And so what they decide is, hey, if Jesus isn't here, maybe we should go looking for him. So in verse 23, it says, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves get into the boats and they went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. And so what they saw was is that Jesus had just filled their stomachs the day before. They had a night of sleep in which they rested well. Their stomachs were full, they had their fill, and they decided, hey, what if we went and found Jesus? Maybe he'll do something great again. 
Unfortunately, they can't find him. They saw the disciples leave. Jesus did not. Now, we get the picture in John chapter 6 of what happened. Jesus walked on water. It seems that he left the Sea of Tiberias and went all the way to Capernaum and walked across um, the sea. This another supernatural act in which the disciples got to encounter and witness, but all the people who had had their fill of bread did not. Well, Jesus is there. They go searching for him. And the question is, is why are they searching? Because isn't it an incredible thing when people who are far from God seem to be searching for God? That's probably a good time to go, yeah, that's, yeah, that's pretty incredible. Like there are some of you in here that that's the reason that you're here. You're like, I, I have been out of church for a long time. Matter of fact, you don't like the church. You don't like people of the church. Matter of fact, one of the things that you say often is, I don't want to go there because it's a bunch of hypocrites. And I happen to agree. But when people seek Jesus, it's a good thing. It's a great thing. But the deal is, is this, you see them seeking him, but the question is, is why? And so in verse 25, it says, they find him on the other side of the sea, and they said to him, Rabbi, why did you come here? Meaning, Rabbi, you had a good thing going outside of the Sea of Tiberias. Like, we enjoyed what you were doing there. Like, this, this local bakery in which you were giving free bread away, it could be a good thing. So basically, here's what you had. You had a group of people that they were like the kids in Guatemala. When you threw candy, they flocked to it. And what's interesting is about the kids in Guatemala, unless I spent time with them and built a relationship with them, they didn't care anything about me. They just wanted what I had to offer. They wanted a handout. And here's what they saw about Jesus. Get this. It was a group of people from the nation of Israel who they were looking for a Messiah and not a Messiah to save them from their sin because they didn't want to acknowledge that they were sinful. They wanted a Messiah that would overthrow Rome and ultimately set up a new kingdom there in which what? They offer to the people good things, goodies, treats, bread. You got it? And so here it was. They had the very first welfare program, and they loved it. We don't have to get up in the morning and go to work. We'll find Jesus. Maybe he'll do something for us. And so Jesus asked, why, why is it that you're seeking me? And they ask a better question. Hey, why did you come here? Why didn't you stay where you were? So here's the deal. They are seeking the right person, but they're seeking him for the wrong reasons. Make you a note there. They seem to be seeking the right person, but they're seeking him for the wrong reasons. And here's the question. Why? The reason they're, they're searching him is not because they have full hearts. They're searching because they now have an empty stomach a day later. They're not searching him for the right reasons, not because they're in love with Jesus, they want to get to know Jesus. As a matter of fact, the question was asked to me right after the first service, Brandon, I've always wanted this question, and you didn't really seem to touch on or answer it. The question is, is this, why did Jesus not make it more clear? Like, he's going to tell who he is here in just a minute, but why did he not make it more plain? Like, why did he seem to use so many parables and analogies and metaphors? Why didn't he just come out and say what he wanted to say? And this is what my reply was. I said, was this text clear to you today? He goes, it was very clear to me. And I said, why? He goes, I guess because I, I understand it. And I said, well, why? Because it, it was a great teaching this morning? Oh, yeah, it was great teaching this morning. That's not what he said. <laughs> Unfortunately, right? Here's why. God illumined his eyes and opened his heart to the word. And he only does that for people who are seeking for the right reasons. See, the difference between you and me is, and, and God is this. You and I can come with ill motives and play it off. We can fake it till we make it. But with Jesus, there's no faking it. 
He sees your heart. He sees your motivation. He sees your agenda, even when no one else does. And here's the deal. These people were, were searching the right guy for the wrong reason. They weren't coming with full hearts. They were coming with empty stomachs. They didn't care about his message. They cared about the bread. Give me more to eat. Give me more for my fill. And so Jesus answers in verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves. Like the only reason you're here, the only reason you got on in boats just like the disciples is because you wanted me to give you more to eat. And so they left the Sea of Tiberias and they searched for Jesus day after day, right, the, the crowds were coming, and what were they wanting? They were more, wanting more handouts. And verse 27 says, So don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. The Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So meaning there is one that's approved by God. He is the one that you ought to be de- desiring. He is the one that you ought to be looking for. That's who God has set his seal on. So here's what I want you to see. There's three things, really. The very first one is simply this, is that in this passage, you'll notice that, that Jesus is divinely appointed by the Father. He's divinely appointed. Like you go, well, what does that mean? It means that Jesus is sent for a purpose from the Father. Matter of fact, you'll notice that if you have a pen, you can just underline all of these things. Verse 29, 32, 33, 38, 39, 41, 46, 50, 51, 57, 58. Why? All of them are direct references that Jesus says himself, I am from the Father. Matter of fact, look at them. Verse 32. Um, I am the bread of heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. He's, he is the divine, eternal bread from heaven. Verse 30, 33, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven. Who is it that comes down from heaven? It is Jesus. He says, I am sent from the Father. Verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but the one who has what? Sent me. Verse 39, I am here because of the will of the one who sent me. Verse 41, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven, right? Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except what? Those or him who is from God, meaning Jesus. Verse 50, this is the bread that comes down from heaven. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came from heaven. Verse 57, I am the living, uh, as the living Father has sent me, I live for the Father. Verse 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Do you see this picture? He is divinely appointed for the Father to come down to broken people in need of a feel in the inner soul, and yet the only feel they desire is for the carnal needs they have in their flesh. Now, I know this doesn't ever happen in the church, right? But it seemed to be happening there. And so here it is. He's divinely appointed by the Father, which means that you and I should not be searching for our hope and our refuge in a New Age movement. We shouldn't be searching for our hope and our answer in Confucius or Buddha or Muhammad or yourself. You should not be hoping for somehow God to reveal himself through your own works and what you offer God. Because really, quite frankly, the scripture says you and I have nothing to offer God. So what should we be looking for? We should be looking for a divinely appointed son, one who is from the Father, one who is of the Father. In John chapter 1, verse 1 through 3, Jesus is said from John, beginning this book. John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him there was nothing that's made that has been made. And the few verses down, in John chapter 1, verse 14, it says, and the Word became flesh, and He dwelt among us. 
The word dwelt literally means he tabernacled among us. He tabernacles in the tent of people. He's always dwelt among the people in skin. He dwells among us in our skin. He goes, I've dwelt among the people. We have seen his glory, the glory from the Father, full of grace and truth. Who is full of grace and truth? Jesus. See, you and I as Christians, we, we have grace and truth, but it seems that we oftentimes have a hard time having a full measure of grace and truth. Sometimes many of us are full of grace and some of us are full of truth, but rarely are we full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. He didn't have 50% truth and 50% grace. He was 100% grace and 100% truth. The problem with our churches is, is that there are some of us that we want to love people as they actually go to hell. We'll give them free bread all day long. We'll never tell them about Jesus. There's others that we're full of truth. We'll never give a piece of bread away because we're selfish and cynical. But we'll tell them how they have forsaken a true and holy Jesus and we'll condemn them to hell based off of the truth we know. Rarely will we have a loving conversation with people who are broken in their sin and tell them about holy God in which we're separated because of our con- condemnation and our sin, because of our flesh and our desire for carnal needs. You get the point? Okay, let's pray, and we're done. Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> and so here it is, God is dwelling among the people. In verse 28, and then they said to him, what must we do to see the works of God? Do, do you see the foolishness of this question here? Here it is, he's just fed 5,000 people, though they did not see him walk on water, his disciples did, and then they go, hey, what works must we see for you to do? Like, how do we know that you are the work and the living God? Um, the fact that you've never seen a blind man see and a lame man walk, and the fact that you've never seen 5,000 people eat bread, that might be a divine clue. But they want more. And so Jesus said, this is the work of God that you would believe in the one he has sent. He goes, what more do you want? I'm here. I'm standing before you. Moses asked, who do I tell the people that you are? The father's response, I am who I am. You just tell them I am who I am. But now I am here, and I'm telling you who I am. I'm telling you who the father is. Why? Because I and the father are one. I have come to do the will of the Father. I have been sent from heaven, from the Father. I have come to redeem people in their sin, from the Father. I am who I am, and he gives you that picture. So here it is in this chance, verse 29, you would think they would hear this message after seeing all the things they've said, they would repent, fall on their knees, and they would trust God as their Savior, right? Oh, God, we've missed it. You offer more than just bread for our stomachs. You are the God that we need. You're the God that we desire, and, and unfortunately, it doesn't end that way. So right after that, he answers, hey, believe in me. They say, verse 30, well, what sign do you have? that we may see and believe you. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the man in the wilderness as written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Do you see this? And, and you may read it and you go, well, how foolish are they? But their hearts are darkened. And so they say, Jesus, what is it that you have to offer us? What signs can you perform? What miracles can you do? Can you do something else? I mean, I remember God giving Moses, and Moses provided for the people all the bread. And they ate manna every single day in the wilderness. And, and they would wake up, and they would go out, and they would be able to, to, to gather enough bread or manna for that day. And on the Sabbath, they would go, and they would gather enough bread for two days. And it would, anything else they didn't eat would rot. And the next day, they'd have fresh bread. And God just did these miracles after miracles. And, and they go, well, if God did that, what are you going to do? And they know enough scripture to try to manipulate Jesus. See, the goal was not to, they're not recounting scripture to say, hey, Jesus, hey, uh, we see what you've done. We trust you. What they're doing is, is, hey, we know what God did for the people of Israel. Wouldn't it be awesome if you were a picture of God? 
and you did what God did. And so we had bread yesterday. What would it look like if you opened the bakery and the benevolent shop today? They want the food pantry open. Do you see it? That's the goal. They say, hey, and they try to manipulate Jesus into it by using Scripture. Now, what's interesting is, is that we do that all the time in the church. We use Scripture to press a point and to manipulate someone. Jesus, though, can't be manipulated. He is the Father. He sees your hearts, your motives. So Jesus says to them, verse 32, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. He is divine and eternal bread, for the bread of God is the one who comes from heaven and gives life to the world. Now catch this, underline this, this is really cool. My Father's the one who gives bread from heaven, and he gives life to the world. How did God give bread from heaven? Well, it used to fall from heaven as man to the ground, because there's no need for man anymore. Why? Because it's more than a physical need that you need met. So he says, I provide a divinely appointed son to meet your spiritual needs as manna from heaven, as the bread of life. His name is Jesus. And he showed up on the scene from heaven at Bethlehem on a starry night in the town of Bethlehem, wrapped in a manger. He is the son of David, found in the city of David. The Shekinah glory of God had departed the people 700 years earlier. They couldn't bring sacrifice to the temple because God wasn't there. But God then showed up on a starry night as men searched for him. And he made his presence among the people. He was the bread of heaven sent from God to the people in Bethlehem. And he gives life. The question is, how does he give life? He gives life through his death. And he died in Jerusalem. And so he came from heaven in Bethlehem. He died in Jerusalem to overcome sin, death, and the grave. He conquered everything that you and I could not conquer on our own, and he gives life to those who, what, would search for him. Do you see that? And so then they said to him, well, sir, will you always give us bread? It almost sounds foolish, doesn't it? It almost sounds ridiculous. But what he's trying to do is lift their eyes from earthly realities to heavenly ones. The problem is they won't look up. Why? Because they have a a need that they want there, and so... Here it is. Jesus says, listen, I am the bread of life. And so he's not just divinely appointed, but he wants to show them that he is the divine deliverer. Like he he wants to deliver them from their sins. He wants them to see it. But the problem is they don't desire to see it. They don't desire for their hearts to be illumined, their eyes to be opened, their ears to hear. All they want is their physical needs to be met. And so verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He, desi- he satisfies our desire for hunger and thirst. And then I said to you that you have seen me and yet you do not believe. So Jesus seemed to see the unbelief in their eyes and their heart. Do you see that? And so it begs the question the guy asked me, well, why did Jesus not explain it more? Because they didn't desire to learn more. I see it at Regen. Regeneration, our recovery ministry on Monday nights. One of the questions that we oftentimes pose to people is John chapter 5, the paralytic who was lame for 38 years. Jesus asked him in John chapter 5, do you want to be healed? What's interesting is that he didn't say yes. What he said was, well, I can't be healed because when the, the waters are stirred, there's always people who, who beat me down to the waters and they're healed first. And because I'm a lame man, I can never get there. There's no one to help me. And Jesus, Jesus seemed to go, I didn't ask you that question. I asked you a simple question, do you want to be healed? And the reality is, is this, most people don't want to be healed. Most people want to waller in their life of sin. Why? Because they do not want to give control up to a holy God. 
And so we have a bank of reasons why we cannot trust God and why we should not trust God. But get this, we do want the benefits of him and his church. We want the blessings that he can provide, but we don't want to follow him with our lives. We want peace and everlasting joy. We want the reality of heaven. The problem is we don't want to know the God of heaven. And so for all of us who we claim to pray a prayer when we were nine years old, that we wanted God to save us from, from sin and death and hell, what we really wanted is we didn't want to burn in hell. But by the time we were 15, we had proved it. We really didn't want to follow the God of the Bible either. And the reality is, is these people didn't either. But this wasn't a new thing. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. He goes, Jesus, you keep talking about being born again. How must we be born again? I, I don't understand. You got to go back into my mother's womb. And then Jesus simply says, hey, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus, one of the chief leaders in Israel, goes, I don't know what you mean. His eyes weren't open at that point. In John chapter 4, there's a woman at the well, a woman who Jesus said, hey, how many times have you been married? She said, I'm not married. He goes, you're right when you say that. You've been with five men. You've been married five times. Now you're living with one that's not your husband. She's drawing well at the noon hour, which no one else draws well, well water then. Why? Because she was literally condemned in her sin. Nobody saw her as a, a fitting lady. Jesus says, hey, I've come to offer you living water in which you'll never thirst again. It's a spring of life in which you'll never have to come and drink of again. She goes, well, hey, if you have that, can, can you not just offer me that water now? I won't have to come back and draw this water at the well. Jesus wasn't talking about physical water, was he? He was talking about spiritual healing. Just the same here. He goes, here's physical bread that you can eat, and it's my body given for you. And they wanted physical bread that would meet their need, right? The problem is their hearts were darkened. And so what do I mean? At, at Regen, at church, in our world, we oftentimes, we want some of the things that Jesus seems to offer, but we don't really want to follow him. And so oftentimes, our recovery comes to a real quick halt when we see that he's calling us to leave everything we've known to trust him. And somehow, we believe that to be conformed to the pattern of this world is better than being renewed by our mind and our faith in Christ. Verse 4, uh, 38, Jesus says, I have come from heaven, not to do the will of, of the one who sent me, but, uh, but to do the will of the one who sent me, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose nothing that he has given me, but I will raise it up on the last day. Now look at this. He's going to show you the salvation process. And so you and I may not understand it completely, but this is what he goes. He goes, I've come from heaven, and I've come to do the will of the one who sent me that of the Father, in which I and the Father are one. And he goes, this is his will. Here it is. I would what? I would lose nothing that he gave to me. So as he's completely obedient to the Father, he comes and he lives among sinful people. He's come, Luke 19.10, to seek and save that which is lost. That means people who are, their hearts are darkened, that he's going to illuminate them, give them life and light, and he's going to save them and ultimately bring them into the kingdom of God. And when he does that, this is what he says. He goes, they're mine. So the Father draws and Jesus saves. And as Jesus saves, get this, he holds on to them. He says, I will lose nothing. So the question is, is what does that mean? It means that some of our brothers and sisters who teach that salvation can be lost, apparently Jesus says it can't. And if it can, then we need to know that Jesus apparently was not divinely appointed and did not come as a divine deliverer. Because if he is divinely appointed and came as divine deliverer, then it means that we can't lose something that we didn't earn in the first place. And I didn't say that. 
Calvin, Luther, all the reformers didn't say that, although they seemed to preach that. Paul's not the one who made that proclamation. Who did? Jesus. Jesus says, I came and I shall lose nothing that the Father has given me. I'm going to raise it up on the last day. It's this process. Romans 8, um, 29, 30 says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers. And though he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he justified. And though he justified, he glorified. Then verse 40 uh, says simply this in this text, For this is the will of the Father, that everyone who looks at the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So here's the deal. God calls, we follow, Jesus holds on to, he saves, he says, I'll never let you go, I'm going to grow you in the process of what's called sanctification, which he, is a picture of Philippians chapter 2, he's going to, if he begins to work in you, he's going to com- carry it to completion, he's going to grow you, he's going to mold you, he's going to shape you, and then he says, and one day I'm going to raise you up on that last day. And he goes, and while I'm doing that, you may think you can be lost, you may think someone else can be lost, but he says, you cannot be lost. Why? Because Jesus doesn't lose one that God gives to him. Now, the question is, is this, how do I know that? Well, I know that because four chapters over, Jesus says it of himself in John chapter 10, verses 27 and 30. He says this, my sheep hear my voice, and they know me, and they follow me. Now, listen to me. If you claim to be one of God's sheep, then there's two things that should be true. One, you should know him, and two, you should follow him. And so if you claim to know him, but you don't follow him, then maybe you're not one of his sheep. That seems so harsh, but the bottom line is, is, in a day and age that we live in now, there's so many who say, I'm going to die and go to heaven. And every time that we say that, we oftentimes question it in our own minds because we know that in the reality of our heart that we don't really follow him. And so he says, those that know me will follow me. He says, I give them eternal life. In John chapter 10, verse 28, they'll never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. This is Jesus speaking. And then listen to what he said. And he says, my father is given to me and he is greater than all. And no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So he goes, Jesus gave you to me, or God gave you to me. And Jesus says, I have you wrapped securely in my hand. And he says, the Father's hand is greater than mine, and nothing can snatch you out. So he goes, when the Father gives me somebody, I call them, I save them, I grow them, I completely know them. Nothing snatches them out of hand. And he goes, and not only do I deliver them, save them, grow them. He goes, one day I'm going to raise them on the last day. I'm going to give them a new glorified body, and they're going to live with me forever. That's the picture that he gives. Do you see that? I don't know about you, but that's good news. And so I had a guy today, I said, man, how are you doing today? He goes, man, just another day in paradise. And I looked at him and I said, man, I sure hope this isn't paradise. He goes, what do you mean? I was like, if this is paradise, then everything I'm going to teach about today is all in vain. Because paradise is... God taking me a sinner, being conformed to the image and the pattern of Christ, even in my sinfulness, and one day redeeming all the things that I cannot redeem myself. Raising me up on the last day. Man, that's what the divine son has done. But what's interesting is, is you would think, okay, that sounds so good. You, you got this divine appointed son that came to live full of grace and truth among the people, that they would recognize him and be delivered from the sin. But the problem is, is that just as much as Jesus is a divine deliverer, he's also a divine disappointment. He is a huge disappointment. As Peter said, he is the capstone the builders rejected. That has become the chief cornerstone. He is the guy that the people would kick to the side. He's the very one who makes many of us in this room to stumble. Why? Verse 41, the Jews grumbled. 
about him because he said, I am the red that came from heaven. Jesus said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How, do we, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered him, do not grumble among yourselves. I know what you're doing. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. Then I will raise him up in the last day. It was written for the prophets. And they will be taught by God. Everyone who's heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Jesus says, why are you disappointed? Why are you grumbling? And what were they saying? I, I know this guy's father. I remember Joseph and Mary. I remember when he was a, just a, a little kid in diapers. How can he claim that he's from God? reason he can claim that he's divinely appointed is because he was born of a virgin of spirit not of flesh which by the way is so huge as we enter the christmas season if jesus was divinely appointed from god he could not have been born of natural flesh why because that means he is full of natural sin but he is born of supernatural work of the spirit of god it means he is full of grace and truth and he had no sin he is the high priest of which we know hebrews 4 15 why he's our high priest He's able to sympathize with all of weakness, yet he was what? Without sin. That's him. The question is, is why does he not save them? It's because of their unbelief. Jesus knows their heart. You remember in Luke chapter 19 when he stumbles into Jericho? And there's a group of people that seem to be watching for him. But get this, in Luke chapter 19, there is one who is a sinner among sinners. His name was Zacchaeus. He climbed up in a... Why? For the Lord... There you go. Y'all should have sang that. It would have been so much better, you know? He enters into Jericho, and there's this guy named Zacchaeus who seems to be a short man who climbs up to a sycamore tree. And in verse 3 of of, uh, chapter 19, it says, And he was seeking to see who Jesus was. And what's interesting is there's a group of people who grumble and complain, and they say, Why in the world is Jesus going to the house of this man, Zacchaeus? Does he not know what a sinner he is? It's the same people who are grumbling and complaining about Jesus proclaiming to be the Son, divinely appointed by God, who's going to deliver people from their sins. The same people. And they're going, Why are you taking him and not me? The bottom line is because Jesus knew their hearts. Jesus entered into Jericho, and he knows the despicable sinner whose heart is corrupt and he's cheated many people, but he goes, you're the one who desires to know me and I desire to know you too. The Father drew Zacchaeus, Jesus saved him, redeemed him, sanctified him, saved him, and what we know now was going to glorify him on the last day. He goes, that's what I do. And unfortunately, that's not what they wanted. And, and, and why? Because they, they wanted more. And so Jesus says in verse 48, I'm the bread of life. Your fathers ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, that that anyone who may eat of it would not die. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he'll live forever. The bread that I give is the word of my flesh. And the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man claim for us to eat his flesh? Do you think they got it? No. Why? Because they were looking for carnal needs. Their eyes were not illumined and their hearts were not open. They were darkened in their sin and they could not be saved by a holy God because they didn't desire that. They desired to continue to live in their own righteous acts, which, by the way, were not real, act, real, real acts of righteousness compared to all the God. I know that doesn't really happen in our church as much, but I know of two of the five churches that I served in. I remember a group of men, and these group of men, they would, they would do like Sunday school records or something, you know. They would, they would count all the records and stuff, and, but they were grumpy, grumpy men. They drank more coffee than they bought, 
they smoked more cigarettes than, than they did anything else, and they would gather together. What you'd notice, though, is I served on these church staffs that these men never put themselves around other people. They weren't in community with other people. They were at the church doing activity. They never sat under the message of someone's teaching. They never were in a, in a place like this, hearing the God's word proclaimed. They never did that. They were always separated from people. But when something went, happened in the church, they were the very first one to raise their hand, to raise their voice, and to say, well, I think we ought to do this. What's interesting, they were never in prayer meeting. They were always the first ones to grumble and complain. But the church met their social needs. They were the first in line at potluck, potluck dinner. You know what I'm talking about? They were the one outside when the fish fry was going on that was sampling the food. But they also had physical needs met. They had their social gathering. They, they played dominoes on Fridays. They got together with their wives and Bunko Thursdays. And they drank coffee and they ate donuts and they talked about people in the town. But there was no growth. There was no life. They had their needs of duplicity met. They seemed to make enough contacts in the church to keep their business going. They didn't serve. They just complained. They loved the fact they remembered the church that one day their daughter, who, by the way, would meet this handsome, young stallion at church, could have their wedding there for free. And when he died, by golly, I was going to have my, uh, my, my, my funeral in this sanctuary, in which I've been a church member here for 65 years. And his casket would sit down at the bottom, and listen, he was a dead man. He was mean, and his wife was meaner. And you might kind of chuckle and laugh, but it's true. And the church served their carnal needs. They didn't want life, and they didn't want what Jesus offered. And that's the picture of these people here. So Jesus says, as he wraps this part up, about being the bread of life, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And Jesus is not talking, you know, Literally here, he's talking metaphorically here. It's not what some of our brothers and sisters in other congregations would say to be true. It's not taking the Lord's Supper and it becoming a picture of transubstantiation where it becomes the literal body and blood of Jesus. We're not doing that. We partake of the blood and the body of Jesus once in salvation. And then we remember it every time that we have the Lord's Supper. They taught on that last week just, just briefly. The bottom line is this. Jesus says, no, when you come and you eat of me, he goes, you live forever. You have bread that fills forever. In verse 54, he says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. I'll raise him up on the last day. You see that picture? He goes, I'm going to raise you up on the last day. It means you'll live with me forever. 55, for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And I, I know if you're kind of new to church for the very first time, you're like, this is kind of weird. He's talking about drinking his blood and eating his flesh. No, what he's saying is, he goes, if you'll put your trust in me, I can save you from yourself. And he says in verse 57, as the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he will also live because of me. This is the bread that came from heaven, not like the bread of the fathers that ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus says these things in the synagogue, and he taught in Capernaum. And he goes, if you want life, you'll find it here in me. If you want to see God and know God, he goes, I am him. Come to me. Later on, he'll make that statement in John chapter 14. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Meaning, he goes, if you want God, you have to get to him through me. Why? Because in the Old Testament, there was a picture of the temple. The very first 
room, really, uh, as you came from the outer court to the inner court to the temple, there was a 15 by 30 chamber there, and that was the holy place. Then there was a curtain that separated it from a 15 by 15 chamber called the most holy place. There were seven different um, furnishings there in the temple, but once you came in to the door, which Jesus says, I am the door, there would be a lampstand on the left side menorah that gave light to the temple the only light there and then there was a, a, a bread stand over here it was the table of shoe bread it was 12 loaves six on the outside line six in the front identically lined together sprinkled in frankincense and here's what jesus is saying he goes there's the holy place in which god dwells if you want to get there he goes i am the door i am the light i am the bread i am the one who gets you to the father Because if you want to see God, you got to eat of the bread I offer. It's not about a handout. It's about truly experiencing God. I don't know if y'all have ever been to Lambert's Cafe, but it's one of my favorite places. Um, there's three locations across the states. Um, if you would like to learn more about them, maybe you're going on vacation soon, come. I'll hook you up with all the information you need. Great food, but incredible rolls. Matter of fact, it's the home of the throwing rolls. And what they would do is you come out, they have fresh, huge trays of hot bread, and you just raise your hand. It doesn't matter where you are in the restaurant, they're going to chunk it across the room. They're really good, they'll throw it behind their back, and I mean, they are on target 100% of the time. Always awesome. Hot rolls. We would take our students there after camp, and sometimes we'd go in with 70, 80, or 90 students. It would be a two and a half hour experience, just an incredible time. It's like a Cracker Barrel on steroids, but they, <laughs> they, they have hot rolls, right? Now, here's what I did. Last time I was there, I took out my phone, and I took pictures of the roll. I, 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 like, I handled the roll. I threw the roll. I told everybody there about the rolls. I even contemplated boxing up a huge tray of rolls, bringing them home, and selling them. They're that good. But I didn't eat any. I mean, why? I mean, if you have it right there, I mean, you can enjoy it without actually eating on it, right? You're like, no, that's stupid. <laughs> and that's a lie. I ate lots, okay? <laughs> but the point is, is this. There's many of us who we love the idea of Jesus. We like to take pictures of him. We like ooey-gooey feelings, and we leave church. We go, oh, I've met with him. We don't know him. We've not experienced him. We've not enjoyed the fullness of, of his body. And yet we oftentimes think we've left and we had this great experience and, we, and somehow we've abided with him. And the deal is we haven't. And that's for the people. They thought, oh, we've abided with Jesus, this Messiah who gives us homemade bread, fills our stomach. And Jesus is saying, you haven't seen anything yet. You've not met with me. You've not had your fill. And the question is, church, is how many times... Have we not had our feel? Because we have made up a Jesus in our own mind. Or we've claimed to trust him and really we've not trusted him with our lives. We've just kind of made up this illusion in our mind of, of what we think he is. He says, I am the true bread. If you eat of me, you drink of me, you will have your fill. You'll never hunger and you'll never thirst again. Church, have you ever experienced him? If you know him, you'll follow him, you'll obey him, and you'll do the will of him who sent was sent by the Father. Amen? So as we enter into Christmas season, may you sing lots of joyful songs. May you understand that Christmas is not something we do in a six or seven week period. It's not about turkey and dressing and when we are permit, 
permitted to sing a few songs. We ought to sing songs all the time. Why? Because he is the bread of heaven that came down among his people. Let me pray for us. God, we love you. We thank you that you are the bread of heaven, that you are the one who gives us our fill. God, fill us. Open our eyes, illumine our hearts, help us to see and to know and abide in you. God, give us strength, give us wisdom, give us grace. Help us, Lord, to be people of truth and love. May we provide joy and hope to this nation. And God, may we find that you are the Savior we long for and that we need, not because of what you give us, not because of the benefits that we think you offer, but because you are life and life eternal. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.